0: And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that having conquered death and risen from the grave, you ascended to the right hand of God, that you intercede on our behalf even now. We thank you also for the gift of your spirit, and your presence with us. May we know your victory, your power, and your presence this day, that we might be strengthened and comforted, and that you might be honored in this place and in our life together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this week we come to the end of our series of sermons on the life and ministry of Elijah. But before we consider the astonishing conclusion of his story in 2 Kings chapter 2, I want to take a step back and remind you where we are in the story of God's people. So Elijah appeared on the scene in the middle of the 9th century BC. God's people were a mess. They had begun their decline roughly 100 years earlier after the death of Solomon. It was then that the kingdom had been split in two. Those based in Jerusalem, the south, known as the kingdom of Judah, remained on relatively stable ground, generally following God and his word. Those in the north, however, known as the kingdom of Israel, they were in trouble from the start. And that is where Elijah had his ministry. It was Jeroboam who first took charge in the north. He was a former government administ- administrator, and he established a splinter kingdom in the north. And immediately when he did so, he set up two sacrificial sites, one in a town called Bethel and one in a town called Dan. He rejected worship at the temple in Jerusalem. He set up a cadre of false priests He abolished the religious calendar that God had given to Moses, and he cast golden calves for the people to worship. This all happens in nine calamitous verses in 1 Kings chapter 12, where the entire religious life of the northern kingdom of Israel is transformed into a smoldering wreck of idolatry. But Jeroboam wasn't even the worst of the kings in the north. That title was held by Ahab, and it was Ahab whom Elijah battled throughout his ministry for the spiritual leadership of Israel. Elijah bested him on Mount Carmel during the famous showdown with the prophets of Baal. And God raised up 7,000 faithful men in the kingdom who were loyal to Elijah But in spite of these victories and in spite of the death of Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 22, Elijah reaches the end of his ministry with the kingdom still in spiritual disarray. Another evil king sits on the throne and false worship persists at Dan and at Bethel. Elijah has seen great things and he's done great things, but he must have felt as if he had been emptying the ocean with a cup. So that's the context of 2 Kings chapter 2. That's where we are. If you're not there already, I hope you'll turn there with me. It's on page 307 in those red Bibles. And our passage begins, weirdly enough, with one of the biggest spoilers in the entire Bible. Verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, So think about this. Before this moment, no one has ever been taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. And after this, no one will ever bypass death and ascend to heaven directly. This is a one-off. You think that the narrator might have milked the drama in the lead up to this miracle, but he doesn't. He lets us in on the secret because he wants us to know that these are Elijah's last actions. He wants us to note carefully where he goes and how he gets there because he's got something to show us. So there are three actions in particular that define Elijah's final days and that give us insight into the significance of this last chapter in his ministry. First, he goes down. Then he crosses over, and at last he rises up. We're going to look at each of these. So verse 1, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Now, when we read a passage like this, it is the psychology of the story that intrigues us the most. Why does Elijah want to leave Elisha behind? Why is Elisha so insistent on going with him? Why does Elisha shush the prophets? These are really interesting questions to us. But apparently they weren't very interesting to the narrator because he makes no attempt to answer or to address them. And while we are preoccupied with psychology and biography, those things that fascinate the modern mind, the biblical authors, they are far more interested in geography, history, and the promises of God. And this difference, it accounts for the fact that most of us, when we read this paragraph, we miss the most perplexing thing about it. So Elijah and Elisha begin the day in Gilgal. Gilgal is a town next door to Jericho on the edge of the Jordan River Valley. And from there, they go to Bethel. Now to get from Gilgal to Bethel, you have to climb roughly 3,500 feet You have to climb from the valley floor up a rocky escarpment and into the hill country. But what does the text tell us in verse 2? The text tells us that they went down to Bethel. Either this is a pretty embarrassing error or something else is going on. I don't think it's a mistake. I think the narrator is trying to tell us something. Something that can only be explained by remembering what went on in Bethel. And by considering the nature of Elijah's ministry. So remember, it was in Bethel. It was in Bethel that King Jeroboam had established one of his two pagan sacrificial sites. It was there that the people of Israel worshipped a golden calf and rejected their God. So Bethel symbolized everything that was wrong with Israel. And all that Elijah had combated during his ministry. At this time, whenever a person went to worship to the temple in Jerusalem, to the pagan altar at Bethel, or any number of other shrines, they were described as going up to offer sacrifice. Because you always offered sacrifice on a high place. So even if you lived in in a village in the hills above Bethel, you still said that you were going up to Bethel when you went to worship there. But we are told quite clearly that Elijah and Elisha went down to Bethel because the one thing that they are not doing is going to worship the idol. For the narrator to describe a 3,500-foot climb as going down is pure, straight-up, intentional irony. Think of this as a verbal takedown that says that whatever Bethel is, it is no place to worship. So why go there in the first place? Well, it seems that Elijah goes to visit the sons of the prophets. We know very little about who these men were and what they did. It's safe to assume that they're part of that remnant of 7,000 that God preserved within Israel. They look to Elijah for leadership and they have stayed faithful to God even though they live in a hotbed of false worship. We can imagine that Elijah went to encourage them to say farewell, but it's not entirely clear. What is clear is that this trip up to Bethel was not a random drop-in on the way to Jericho, which was next door to Gilgal. This was a special trip that involved an arduous climb, And the only hint we're given as to why is this blatant bit of irony about going down and the fact that Elijah visited the faithful remnant while he was there. Here's what I think all of this means. Elijah's ministry, it has always been about the sovereign power of God. Everywhere he goes, the desert, the far north, the deep south, mountains, valleys, caves, everywhere he goes... God turns up to show that He's in charge and that He is able to do all things. This visit to Bethel, at the end of Elijah's life, it's a reminder that God is still sovereign, He is still powerful, He is still active, even in the midst of an idolatrous nation. That's a great reminder. We need these reminders from Scripture today because the world that we inhabit, it's saturated with idolatry and its consequences. Whether that's the rampant sexualization of our relationships, the destructor, the destruction of gender, persistent racial division, abuse of the poor, human trafficking, the prioritization of personal and political identity over Christian identity— All of these things remind us that we live in idolatrous times where other things, other people, other desires are competing with the God of the universe for our attention. But God is still in charge. God is still powerful. We also need this reminder because we live in an anxious world, whether it's the economy, the state of our culture the specter of artificial intelligence, or even armed conflict, you name it, we are surrounded by uncertainties. And many of us, if we're honest, many of us live in a a state of persistent, low-grade anxiety. But God has not forgotten us. He is still sovereign over all creation. He is still powerful. And that's what we're reminded of in this strange description of Elijah and Elisha going down to Bethel. So in verse 4, Elijah and Elisha head back down the mountain to Jericho. And there they visit the sons of the prophets once again, uh, and they want to make sure that Elisha knows what's about to happen. He assures them that he does. And from Jericho, the two men head toward the Jordan River, and they're followed by 50 of these sons of the prophets. So verse 6, Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So those who are familiar with the biblical story, when we read this, you think immediately of a similar moment in Israel's history when Moses struck the Red Sea with his staff and it parted for the people of Israel to pass through on their way out of slavery in Egypt. Elijah seems to be channeling his inner Moses as he turns his cloak into a kind of staff to strike the water and part the Jordan. But we're also reminded here of the end of Moses' ministry and how Joshua, having been given the spirit of Moses, miraculously parted the Jordan River right here where Elijah and Elisha are standing and then led the people into the promised land after Moses had died. What we're seeing here, it's a reenactment of the handover of Moses' ministry to Joshua. And in this moment, Elisha asks Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. This is a little confusing. Elisha is not asking for twice as much Holy Spirit power as Elijah. What he's asking for is the inheritance of a firstborn son. So back in Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter 21, we're told that the heir to an estate, typically the firstborn son, receives a double portion meaning he gets twice as much as his siblings. That's what Elisha is asking for. He's asking to be the one to carry on the work of Elijah as a son carries on the work of a father. He wants to lead the faithful remnant left in Israel. Now, why is this a hard thing, as Elijah puts it? Well, not because it's difficult for God, but because it's impossible for Elijah himself to do. He cannot grant this request, which is why he leaves it in God's hands to reveal God's plan. So after Elijah's shocking ascension, which we'll come to in just a minute, Elisha picks up the cloak of his mentor, and he approaches the river once again. Verse 12, then he took hold of his own clothes, and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, They said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. So Elisha returns to the river alone. The sons of the prophets, they know that Elijah is gone. But they they don't know how or where because they haven't seen the chariot and the whirlwind. So they're wondering, has God left them? Has the Spirit abandoned Israel for good? Has God finally grown tired of his people's unfaithfulness and gone away forever? These questions must have been on their minds. And Elisha gives voice to them as he rolls the cloak up into a rod, just like Elijah, and he cries out, where is the Lord, the God of Israel? And then he strikes the water, and again it parts. And Elisha crosses back over to join them. God is saying, where am I? I am right here with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I have given Elisha the inheritance of Elijah, my Holy Spirit. Elijah may be gone. I am not God was with Moses in the wilderness. God was with Joshua as he parted the waters of the Jordan and led God's people into the promised land. God was with Elijah wherever he went, both in and out of the promised land. God will now be with Elisha, carrying on the fulfillment of his promises and caring for his people. You know, sometimes when I'm sitting in church, I'll notice something in the passage that I missed during all of my preparation. And I sit there and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. Sure enough, it happened this morning as Nancy was reading. Maybe it was her intonation. I don't know what it was. But I finally realized Elisha three times, what does he say to the prophets? This is what he says. He says, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Three times he says that because that is the message that God is giving to him and to the prophets during this scene. I will never leave you. So if Elijah and Elisha go down to Bethel to remind us of the sovereign power of God, they then cross over the Jordan River to assure us of his ongoing presence with his people. Not only is God all-powerful, he is also ever present. And once again, we need this reminder. God never abandons His people. He never forgets His promises. From generation to generation, He's present with us no matter the circumstances. No matter how lonely you may be, no matter how isolated you may feel in your struggles, God is with you, and He will hold you fast. You can actually trust Him even when you feel like you can't trust anyone else. As one last action to consider, and it is the most shocking of all, having gone down and crossed over, Elijah then rose up to heaven. God sent a chariot of fire in the midst of a whirlwind and carried him up into heaven. Now this is the only time this happens in scripture. You may know the story of Enoch from Genesis 5, where we're told he was a man who walked with God and then was taken up by God. But this scene is different. This scene is different, and that is because Elijah's ministry was different. So, one of the major themes of Elijah's ministry has been the power of life over death. God sustained Elijah with bread and water in the desert when he should have died. God gave the widow of Zarephath oil and flour in the midst of famine when her whole household should have died. God then raised the widow's son from the dead when Elijah went up and cried to God in prayer. Finally, God sent rain to barren land to bring life after three years of drought. Throughout the ministry of Elijah, God showed that he brings life out of death and that life is more powerful than death. But can a man live forever? Can death actually be be defeated? In this last act of Elijah's ministry, God says yes to that question Elijah never dies. He's the man who never dies, he bypasses death and is taken up into heaven. This is nuts. Chariots, they were the tanks of Elijah's day. They were the most sophisticated, terrifying weapon available. When God sent a flaming chariot to carry Elijah to heaven, it was an act of war against death itself. The chariots of earthly kings may have brought unparalleled destruction and heart-rending tragedy, but they are nothing compared to the chariot of God, which has the power to defeat death. Elijah and Elisha went down to Bethel as a reminder that God is still sovereign and still powerful. Elijah and Elisha crossed over the Jordan to assure us that God is still present with his people. And as the last act of his ministry, Elijah rose up to heaven to reveal the ultimate victory of God, which is life over death for his people. Now, I'm sure you have already noticed and already anticipated what I'm going to say next, which is that these actions, they all foreshadow the ministry of Jesus, right? The Son of God who stood with his Father at the creation of the world and spoke it into being, he came down. He came down to remind us of his sovereign power and to set the world free from idolatry. He came down, he also crossed over. He crossed over fully into our broken world, becoming one of us. And he assured us of his ongoing presence, which he confirmed by the gift of his Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, it was almost certainly at this same spot, the spot where Elijah, Elisha, and Joshua had all parted the waters before him to clear the way for God's people. So when Jesus was parted, when Jesus was baptized, he parted the waters to clear the way for our salvation. And then as the last extravagant act of his ministry, Jesus rose up. Unlike Elijah, though, he died. He had to die to bear the sins of the world as a sacrifice but then he rose from the dead, and having risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven on a cloud, not unlike Elijah, to reign at the right hand of God. So in Jesus, and by faith in him, we are assured of this ultimate victory, because through the risen life of Jesus, death is defeated forever. Not just man one, not just one man one time, but forever. At the end of Elijah's ministry, we're assured of all these things. God is sovereign and powerful. God is still present with his people. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, life conquers death. And we will one day rise in glory to live with him forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are sovereign and you are powerful. No one and nothing can defeat you. We praise you because you're present with your people today in this place, even now by your spirit, you are with us, comforting, encouraging, challenging. And because you rose from the dead and conquered death, Our victory is assured, and we can have hope in you for everlasting life. We praise you for these things, and we praise you for the life and ministry of Elijah, in whom all of these truths were foreshadowed, and through whom you showed yourself faithful in a dark and difficult time. Would you strengthen us today, encourage us, that we might rejoice in your presence for your name and for your glory, amen.